We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble and the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Strong Voices. Uh, we're coming to you from the Calm Radio studios here on Arana Country in Central Australia and uh, broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We are on uh, 8KFM here in Alice Springs and Bantua and coming to you via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. Today is uh, Friday. It's the first Friday, I believe, of the 11th of this year. So the 5th of November today. My name's Carl Dialing and great to be back with you here on Strong Voices. Coming up on the program today, Karma's Joseph Giacomara Egger catches up with award-winning actor Deborah Mailman to talk about the release of the second season of the political drama Total Control, in which uh, Deborah plays the lead character. Also, Carmen's Philippe Perez uh, will be speaking with the uh, Central Australian Aboriginal Congress Engagement Officer, Janet Turner, about Congress's new COVID-19 vaccine acceleration program. Philippe will also be joining us a little bit later in the program as well to give us a bit of a roundup of some of the uh, latest news stories from throughout the week. But first, Aboriginal people across the Northern Territory are being urged to voice their concerns to a Senate inquiry about proposed changes to the Aboriginal Land Rights Act NT. Professor John Altman, a veteran observer of the Act and a former consultant to both the Northern and Central Land Councils, says in his opinion there needs to be more discussion and scrutiny over the proposed changes. I've been researching land rights issues in the Northern Territory since 1979 just after the Land Rights Act was passed in 1976. And probably more significantly, I chaired a review of the Aboriginal's Benefit Account uh, in 1984 for the then Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Clyde Holding. And some of the issues that are arising now, 37 years on from that review, were recommendations in that original report. The Aboriginal Land Rights Act of 1976 is really the high-water mark in Australia in relation to land rights and, and also native title rights and interests for Indigenous people. And the main issue there is that people were firstly given inalienable rights to land. In other words, the land that people claimed, which was placed in land trusts, couldn't be taken away from them. And secondly, and really most importantly, uh, people were granted what's sometimes referred to as a right of veto, but fundamentally they were granted free prime form consent rights. In other words, Traditional owners have the final say on what happens on their land, even in relation to mining. And and that's something that you just don't see anywhere else in Australia. Conservative governments in particular have always been very uncomfortable with the Northern Territory Land Rights Act, even though it was passed by Malcolm Fraser, a Liberal Prime Minister from 1975 to 1983. But the thing is about the Land Rights Act is firstly... 
50% of the Northern Territory is now held under an A-Liberal Aboriginal title. That's 700,000 square kilometres. It's a massive jurisdiction. Um, and secondly, the rights and interests that um, traditional owners have under the Land Rights Act are superior to those under the Native Title Act. So conservative governments have really been looking to wind back those rights and interests uh, to match those that people get under the Native Title Act and, and those rights don't include a right of veto. They only allow people to negotiate in relation to development on their land. So developmental governments you know, who talk about uh, developing the north, who look to make export revenue and national income out of uh, mineral extraction, obviously see uh, the rights inherent in the Land Rights Act as potentially blocking that sort of extractive development. And so there has been, I think, a concerted effort to dilute, um, you know, the language that's often used is streamline uh, the Land Rights Act uh, to make it, uh, you know, more straightforward for development proposals to be heard. And again, even with these uh, proposed amendments, the rights of the free prime form consent rights of traditional owners remain, but there are other ways that um, those rights and interests can be chipped away at, which we're seeing, I think, uh, with these amendments, but also with previous amendments to the Land Rights Act. Land councils are very unusual uh, institutions in the Australian context. They were set up in 1974, even before the Land Rights Act was passed. And they do have a role to represent traditional owners in relation to their aspirations, their goals in relation to how their land is used. And the fundamental role that land councils uh, played during their first uh, 20, 30 years of operations was to actually claim land for traditional owners. And I think they did that extraordinarily well. But in, in the last decade or so, we've um, come to this period, which I guess some people refer to as the um, post-claims era, if, even though some claims are still outstanding, the majority of claims have now been heard and, have been, and most of them have been successful. So now uh, land councils have looked uh, to have a more you know, governmental role, I guess, in managing land. And again, I think one has to recognise in the Northern Territory that we're talking again about half the Northern Territory and the four Aboriginal land councils have statutory roles, they're statutory authorities, and they have roles outlined in the law in relation to how 50% of the Northern Territory is actually managed in terms of resources and land management. The Beetaloo is obviously a massive hydrocarbon resource that the federal government, collaborating with the Northern Territory government, is very keen to see exploited. This is a highly contentious area of potential development because of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. If uh, Australia is thinking about net zero by 2050, then it definitely is thinking that we don't need a, a Beetaloo Basin development. Um, so there's a real fundamental contradiction there, you know, while, while we um, have COP26. But part of the problem with Beetaloo as well is that some of the agreements that were completed for exploration there, bearing in mind that traditional owners of Aboriginal owned land can only veto exploration, they can't veto development post-exploration. So if exploration goes ahead and is successful, they can't then turn around and uh, veto extraction. They can, they can only have a right to negotiate agreements. But Beetaloo is very complex too because while 
of the Northern Territory is now under an inalienable freehold title under the Land Rights Act. Another 25% of the Northern Territory is held uh, under native title, non-exclusive possession. And so what you have in the Beetaloo is an extraordinary complexity because you have two regimes operating there and the land rights regime is more powerful than the native title regime and many of the traditional owners of Aboriginal land in the Beetaloo are saying that yes there were some agreements struck a decade ago but that's an awful long time ago and now they want to revisit those exploration agreements because again the whole issue of climate change and global warming was, had a very different national and global significance back then than it does now. At face value, what these amendments are proposing to do, this economic empowerment bill, is looking to actually set up a what's called a Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation. And it's actually looking to take money out of the ABA and set up a new statutory authority that will be mainly Aboriginal control. So in a sense, face value, money is being taken out of the ABA's equity or reserves, which currently are nearly $1.4 billion, and, and half of that amount will be allocated to NTAPE, the Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation. At the beginning, I said I'd been involved in a review of the ABA in 1984. There was always a sense that with time, the ABA, which holds the equivalence of royalties raised on Aboriginal land, should be under Aboriginal control. And part of this amendment package is looking to do that by at least placing half the equity held by the ABA in this new corporation. But, but the ABA itself is a very complex institution. Some of the money that goes to the ABA, 30%, is earmarked for areas affected by mining. So that, that goes straight through the ABA to communities, those traditional owner groups in areas that are directly affected by mining, places like Gove and Groot Island. Another proportion of the ABA's income goes to fund the four Aboriginal land councils. And it's only the balance that's available to or for the benefit of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. And, and one of the contentious issues in the new proposal is whether that requirement for monies to be allocated to or for the benefit of Aboriginal people historically as grants, whether that function will actually continue because this new corporation is also vested with responsibilities to invest in business and also to invest its, its equity, its, its resources to earn income. So, so it's, it's actually an, an institution, this new proposed institution, is, is one that doesn't have very clear, a very clear set of objectives. It, 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 it at once seems to emphasise economic development, but the grants from the ABA in a, historically have not just been for economic development, they've also been for social and cultural purposes. And, and in a sense, they were quite an unusual source of income for Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. And again, we're not just talking of traditional owners of land, we're talking about Aboriginal people throughout the Northern Territory. And one of the concerns is this, this new corporation, which will have eight out of 12 directors appointed by the four land councils, will be too heavily focused on shifting monies from the ABA through the Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation to development on Aboriginal land rather than to afford the benefit of Aboriginal territorians more generally.
when we look at the amount of money that has been generated in three, four decades, why are Aboriginal people still living in poverty? That's a good question. And one of the answers is that it's, it's very unclear to what extent those monies that have been allocated to the ABA over the last 43 years, $4 billion have been paid to the ABA as a money royalty equivalent income. And to what extent have those monies really just offset the sorts of expenditures that governments should have been allocating to Aboriginal people as Australian citizens on the basis of need? And there is a sense, while it's it's really very positive to have grants, and, and those grants have totaled about $600 million over those 43 years, made two or for the benefit of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory, to what extent have they just offset allocations that government should have been making? And in fact, to what extent have they allowed governments, and here I'm talking about the Commonwealth and the Northern Territory governments, to under-invest in Indigenous people on the basis of need? So you only need to go to any remote Indigenous community to see that the level of investment and housing, education, health, employment services, uh, telecommunications, communications through roads, there's enormous underinvestment out there. And the resources that have been allocated to the ABA, which are actually Aboriginal monies from mining activity on Aboriginal land, are hopelessly inadequate to meet the need that's out there. My sense is that Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory don't even know that major changes to the Land Rights Act are about to be moved in the Parliament into new law. So the Rears Review, uh, 1998 and 1999, and the way Indigenous people reacted when major changes to Land Rights Act were being proposed. And here we are in 2021. What Minister White calls the most significant changes to the Land Rights Act in 45 years are about to be enacted and many Aboriginal people and many traditional owners and many Aboriginal communities in Northern Territory haven't even heard about these proposed amendments and yet they're presented as being for their economic betterment. It's called the Economic Empowerment Bill and it's meant to be co-designed with Indigenous people but, but many people haven't heard about them. And there is a Senate inquiry underway. And submissions to that inquiry, very unfortunately, in my opinion, are being rushed. If people want to make submissions, they can probably get us an extension. But nevertheless, the Senate inquiry is proposing to report on the 25th of November, you know, just in three weeks' time. And possibly these amendments will go to the next parliamentary sitting on the 29th of November, to be passed into law with what, to my mind, is unconscionable haste. It's unclear what the hurry is to get these laws passed. And, and in my view, if they get passed without proper consultation, they will really lack legitimacy in the eyes of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. If Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory are concerned about this massive bill, 80 pages, that's going to fundamentally alter the Land Rights Act, they should raise their voices and make uh, representations uh, to the Senate inquiry, but also to the land councils who have negotiated these changes on their behalf. 
That was uh, Professor John Altman there speaking about proposed changes to the Aboriginal Land Rights Act NT. He was speaking there with Karma's uh, Paul Wiles. You're tuning into Strong Voices here on Karma Radio, where we're going to be hearing uh, from award-winning actor Deborah Malman right after this. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari, and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. It's uh, a couple days before the airing of the second season of Total Control, which is a political drama featuring award-winning actor Deborah Mailman as the lead character Alex Irving, a Queensland woman who is whisked into the chaos of Canberra politics. Karma's Joseph Giacomara Eko caught up with Deborah Mailman to talk about the release of the second season, which will be aired this Sunday, the 7th of November. With this character, Alex's character, is there a sense of pressure you feel... You know? Yeah, look, there is a bit because um, in some respect, you know, she's not a likeable character. She does stuff that is questionable that, you know, that, and even in the world people don't like her. But just generally, like as an actor, I had to sort of go, right, some of her actions, what she says, what she does, you know, isn't very, um, she could be seen as quite an unlikable character. So I had to make sure that people just tune in and go, oh, I don't like her, you know, and turn off the television. I've got to find something else in there that, that they would sort of come come with Alex. So, you know, talking about that sense of warmth and heart and, you know, that there's something deeper and stronger with her as a character that I, that I wanted to sort of marry with what was already on the page so that, People are drawn into her. They just go, you know, she's a single mum. She's putting her best foot forward all the time. Um, and she's coming, I think also too, because she speaks in in a no-bullshit way, I think people really like that too. So playing Benita Marbo, was yeah. there a lot you learnt from that? Did that help yeah. mould this character a bit? Yeah, look, it's really interesting because, you know, what, uh, what the, the, the similarities are, and what I think I really love about Alex and Benita and, and what people have taken notice of about now is that, and you just touched on it earlier, is like I think Alex and Benita are reflective of what I see and feel all the time, which is that strong black woman. Yeah. And we see them all the time, you know, they're our relatives, they're our family, they're our friends, they're out there, whether they're in a high-profile position or not. Like, I just feel these characters are reflective of what's already there, and that's our strong mob, man. We've got such a strength of character, and, and whether it's a quiet strength or it's a fighting strength. Yeah. Like, we see it in our, our women all the time, and our men, like, they're just, there's something. Boom. You know what I mean? I think that's the different, that's the, the similarity with a lot of these characters I play with black women because that's who we are. You know, we have a rage within us. We have a passion. We have a fight. And, yeah, we've got sadness as well. We've got all that. But um, you don't want to mess with us. When you're asking the question, like, I think that's more what I draw on is that that's what the, 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 the common thread is, is that, you know, we're we're showing our women in 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 how they really genuinely are. You know, doing this role and obviously doing the Bonita role was the political space. You know, something out of your depth 
I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit out of my depth when it comes to politics. Not a little bit, a lot. You know, so I had to rely on what Perkins, Rachel Perkins. You know, because that's her upbringing with yeah, Uncle Charlie. Totally. You know, so and she's very, um, very intelligent around those politics as well. So is Rachel Griffiths. So I sort of just decided, look, I'm not going to pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm not intelligent around politics. So I'll just listen to the people that are. But this really falls into the character, right? Because it seems Alex is going into this whole experience quite green and yeah. learning as you're going, as you're evolving, right? Yeah, like definitely. Like she, 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 she's very green when it comes to the politics in Canberra. I mean, it's, the writers have sort of drawn in a way like she's not she's not new to like you know we've said that she's served on local council for for some years, um, you know. So she's not completely green in that way. She gets she knows how to talk in that way. But Canberra's another beast. Canberra's just a completely different beast. And you know, I think having to feel that judgment from the establishment, you know, that oh, who's this? person is just coming in waltzing in and she's had no sort of she hasn't paid her dues you know what I mean and and um and being underestimated in her intelligence as well you know like I guess that's what I really loved about it is that I think people that Alex cracked open every or smashed every what's the word um expectation that people had of her you know, she surprised everyone. You know, they probably wrote her off as some, all right, you know, she's not going to stay here very long. She'll be out soon enough. Um, but they didn't bet on her having the resilience and the determination that she has. It's a really interesting concept to me because you, you sort of, you go into the establishment and you're anti-establishment, but does then there's sort of that question arises, you know, inevitably, does the system change you, uh, yeah. right? And then, so the first series, just on the title, so it was, was it Black Bitch originally? Yeah, it was. We had the privilege of knowing the story, whereas a lot of people didn't. So, you know, I knew where the story was going, I know what was involved, and I knew why a title such as Black Bitch was so integral to the story that we were telling. So I knew it from that perspective, and I thought, Oh, I get it. I get it. This could be really, really great title. But I also get that it may have offended a lot of people too. And that's the last thing we want to be doing as a show is offending people, but particularly offending our own mob. Like, it's not worth it. So going from first, so you're going in green as Alex character, first series. Yeah. And then there's a, like, coup, yeah, there's a turnover. Yeah. And then you've come in. So this second series is more about you Alex character sort of stripping everything back going back to your, yeah going your, yeah. back home going back to yeah. community I mean season two looks at the consequences of the actions that happened in season one so with with the ousting of the prime minister so we are looking at the consequences of Alex's actions in season two and and how that has extended beyond just her own personal world like it's extended into what Eddie her son and how he's been affected by all this yeah. and Charlie her brother and the community as a whole. But um, what happens is that she realises no matter what major political party I'm on, nothing's going to change. They're not going to do what... They're not going to invest in the change that I want. So then she decides to become an independent. 
And she feels that's the only way that she can make a difference is by not having her hands tied by any political party line, that she can go out and be absolutely true to her voice and her community's voice. It's so intelligent. Yeah, isn't it? Like, that's that's the writers, man. That's bloody Darren Dale and Rachel Griffiths and Rachel Perkins. Like, that's their brain. Yeah, well, look, you've got to execute it, though. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I don't envy that, but um, I think just having that trust, like you, you're speaking speaking of, you know, with Rachel, obviously, you know, you've collaborated for a long time, and yeah. and I feel a big part of filmmaking, you know, you need to have that trust, and it's quite yeah. evident, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's like with any any office space or any work, you know, you just there are people that you click with that you get on with, that, that that you share the same ideas and the same passions and how you you want to sort of um, create things. So, you know, I'm just lucky that that those people are the likes of Rachel Perkins and Rachel Griffiths and Wayne Blair and Darren Dale. Like, I've just been very lucky that we just, we all want to create really great work. I think that's the, the foundation to while we keep working with each other is because we want to keep pushing pushing the creative process, upping the ante, always trying to create the best show possible. Do you feel, like for, with me, I just feel a, a lot more safer and having, being around Aboriginal perspectives in this space because I think it's really important, you yeah. know, when you're conveying narratives and stories and Aboriginal yeah. perspectives can be quite cumbersome to constantly reiterate simple points, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It gets tiring. But I actually I think it's really perfect, the words that you just said before, which is safe. I think that's that's as, as equally, you know, that's where when you feel safe then you can start trusting the process. I would imagine you'd get, you know, you'd get roles and offers left, right and centre at I'm not yeah, more than, I got, yeah, in comparison, yeah, absolutely. But is there ever times you feel like red flag and like, what the hell is this about? Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's been some projects where I'm going, oh, okay. Um, so then I have to look at the question, have they got a black key creative on this process? Uh, no, they haven't. Oh, that makes sense then because then it's like there's no, it's almost like the, Indigenous character or the Indigenous content, it's obvious that it's had no input by a black fella. Is that infuriating? Yeah. You know, but I just, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with collaboration. There's nothing wrong with, you know, there's some great sort of work out there where you've had white producers, black beer, whatever. However, it works. There's nothing that's how the world works, you know, industry works, is by collaborating with one another. I think it's when we become an afterthought in, in the key decisions. Like they suddenly go, oh, no, we've got to get a cultural consultant on. Oh, maybe, maybe you know, like there's a la- when there's a laziness around that, that's what really pisses me off. Yeah, I know that, you know, especially Screen Australia, it, it, the standards, when it comes to having Aboriginal key creatives and overseeing these projects, are we sort of paving the way? It seemed like when you spoke in Toronto when the interviews you'd done, I watched on YouTube, um, yeah. Rachel sort of mentioned that, you know, we're sort of leading the standard within film. We are yeah. in terms of when it comes to when it comes to that particular storytelling and protocol yeah. and cultural sensitivity, in terms of what the Indigenous unit of Screen Australia 
have created in play. So if you if, if any any production is going in with Indigenous content or Indigenous creatives, there is a, a, a manual to make sure that, well, okay, if you're going to get money from us, then everything's got to be right. You've got to... There's a checklist there. You've got to go bang, 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 and if any of that doesn't match, then you're not going to get, you're not going to be supported. So yeah. it's really great. It's you know, and this has been developed over you know for a long time now. So um, and I think internationally, that's recognised in terms of the. Um, look, I don't know if many many other mob overseas have that yeah. in the way that we do. Yeah. But it's very much um, we've set a standard. In terms of telling Indigenous stories and First Nations stories, we certainly set a standard to, to the right process in order to tell that story. That was award-winning actor Deborah Mailman there speaking with Karma's Joseph Jagamara Egger on the release of the second season of Total Control, which will come out uh, this Sunday, the 7th of November. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices, and when we come back, we'll, hear, we'll be hearing about the uh, Central Australian Aboriginal Congress's new vaccine acceleration program. Hey, hey, this is Shawnee Tilbury and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo! The Central Australian Aboriginal Congress recently launched a new vaccine acceleration program which will include new engagement officers speaking to First Nations people in Alice Springs as well as communities throughout Central Australia. These officers will be speaking to people in language and addressing people's concerns about the Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca vaccines which are currently available to everyone in the Territory. One of those engagement officers, Janet Turner, recently spoke to Karma's Philippe Perez. Good to uh, you, Janet Turner, here from the uh, Congress engagement team. Thank you for joining us here at Karma. Can I get you to just um, tell us what your role is at Congress, please? Yeah, we are um, engagement officers working for Congress. The um, VAX crew, all our involvement in um, working for the VAX is talking to people in town about COVID-19 and about getting their injections. Um, We are a group that's working under the Commonwealth Government for Congress. We're engagement officers and there's about six of us already in town working And we have um, engagement offices as well out at communities. And we will be working around for about eight weeks to support and help our people to get their vaccinations before the borders open. Now, Congress went on what's been described as a vaccination blitz, I think around about a month or so ago. Were you involved in that by any chance? No, no? I've just... Started this week. Tell us about your feelings about the, the upcoming weeks, about the effort to get people vaccinated against COVID nineteen in town. Well, I reckon it's best for all people to get their vaccination because I was a bit scared at first, but I got mine and I felt like I'm going to be safe because I got my needle, my needles, and yeah, I want to support as much people, our people in town, to get theirs. But it's up to them if they want to get their needles. But it's very important to get their vax done, to get their needles, 
they save themselves and they save their children and we don't want it to get any bigger with our mob getting sick in town. We want them to be safe. Have you spoken to anyone already so far or is... Well, we've spoke roughly to about 100 people so far since we've started Monday and some of them are thinking about it. Some of them were willing to come into the clinic to get their needles. We do try and encourage most of our people to get the needle, but some of them do not want to get the needle. We don't only go out and just ask them, do you want to get the needle or you have to get the needle. We We sit with them and we explain to them why they should get the needle but we say to them, it's up to you. If you want to get that needle to be still here, you can get it. But if you, mm. if you don't want to get it, it's up to you. We can't force anyone. Say I'm someone who's a little bit hesitant, comes to a clinic and they I see you in the clinic and I, I have some concerns about the vaccine and what it might do to me. I'm not too sure if I want to take it. Can you tell me about what your message would be? Well, I do home visits. In our little breaks, we walk around in town, get a coffee, get lunch, and we talk to other people too on the streets and in the shopping centres and ask them, you know. But I usually talk in language when I see people that I know and other people that are in different language groups, from different language groups as well, about COVID. I said, oh, did you get your needle? And the colour needle, and did you get a needle? And they said, yeah, I got my needle. I'm just waiting for my second one. And I speak to some people that haven't got it and some of them just say, no, I'm not getting it. And That's only the ones that we bump into in the streets, but the ones we go and do home visits, we sit and we yarn and talk and ask them, is there a reason why you don't want to get your needle? And they'll probably tell us a little story about why and we sort of don't go any further and we'll say, well, think about it, it's up to you. People might be listening to it, to this conversation and be thinking about getting a needle. How can they get a needle? Can you maybe direct people on the best place to go to as a first step if they have decided, well, yes, I'm going to get a vaccine against COVID-19? Well, all they need to do is ring Congress for the bus to pick them up or make an appointment. And they need to go into Congress. Congress is open, the Gap Road Clinic. It's open from... 8 o'clock to 5, so if they want to go into Congress, they can go into Congress and get the needle there. Um, the Northside Clinic, it's uh, from 9 o'clock to 11.30. Also the Saturdine and the Larapinda Clinic as well, 9 to 11.30. Is there an easy way for people to... Uh, contact engagement officers if they do want to have a yarn as well, uh, not necessarily to t- get a vaccine, but if they just want to have a conversation? Well, like 
We're sort of doing it now. We're on the we're on the ground now, going around talking and having conversations sure. okay. already. And but, but I'm asking if, if people want to maybe come to you. Say if someone might be listening to this and say, "Yeah, I want to have a conversation as well." Are you willing to go out and have a yarn with them? And how do they? Yeah, so I'm, I'm willing to sit down with them and just yeah. tell them, give them a little bit experience about the needles and how they'll feel. And yeah, after they get the jab. Yeah, we'll be driving around town, into town camps, to houses around town, and we are driving around with our uniforms on. We have blue shirts. So if you see us pulling up at your mirror, we've got blue shirts on, and you know that we're the COVID team to come to talk to you about your vaccinations. You mentioned speaking in language earlier on. Can you talk to us about how important it is for people to get information in language as well and a little bit about your role in providing that? Yeah, well, it is very important that we need to speak in our language to our people so they can understand properly, you know, to understand. Because when you speak language to our people, they they pick it up real quick. And it makes them relaxed and make them think a bit more and make them speak back to you a bit more, you know, about mm. what they want and what they want to do with themselves. Having that conversation makes yeah. it easier. Yeah. I'd like to invite you to maybe say something in language if you want as well to the audience out there who might be thinking about getting a vaccine. Yeah, well, Nun war gerama town la nang town rin mabaga ang kalabumala need let nagan na jig nang need it na baganja nam need let na jig at nan na jig anja na jagan walkala Janet Turner, thank you for talking to us here. Yeah, kala kala. That was the uh, Congress Engagement Officer, Janet Turner, there, uh, who will be assisting the health service in talking to communities about COVID-19 vaccines. And she was speaking there with Kalmas Philippe Perez. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices. And when we come back, we'll give a bit of a wrap up of some of the uh, news stories from it throughout the week. Strong Voices. And welcome back to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. We are now catching up with Karma's Philippe Perez. Good afternoon, Philippe. Where are Kyle? How are you going? Not too bad. Uh, it's, of course, that time again to have a look at some of the stories. Of course, the big one coming out of uh, here in the Northern Territory up in the top end, some concerns in regards to the COVID situation, the lockdown and the, the lockout that we're seeing there as well. Uh, just for those who are a bit unfamiliar, and, and just walk us through what's actually been happening. So late last night, the Chief Minister, Michael Gunnar, called a, a SAP press conference um, to announce that Catherine will go into lockdown for 70, 72 hours uh, due to one positive community case uh, in that region. It was found in a man in his 20s who works at the RAAF base in Tyndall, which is just outside Catherine. Um, he was unvaccinated and uh, the government uh, say that, the Gunner government say that the man uh, 
had not left the Northern Territory in quite a while. Uh, so he would have picked it up within the community. And essentially, this is the Northern Territory's first case of community transmission of COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Um, the man was tested for COVID-19 on the 3rd of November, returned a positive test on Thursday, and had been infectious in the community between the 31st of October and the 3rd of November. Uh, so at that time, five exposure sites had been announced, uh, one of them being Monsoon's Nightclub in Darwin, which I understand is a fairly popular nightclub. And uh, there's been uh, uh, assumptions from the government, government, both the chief minister and journalists suggested that uh, the uh, man picked up the virus at that nightclub. However, we do not know if that is the case. Um, uh, however... Um, that has been listed as an exposure site on the 29th uh, of October. So just on that, so we're still a bit unsure in terms of who and where he actually got it from in the first place. That's correct. Right at the moment, no. Uh, there was some suggestions in a media conference that was held earlier this morning that uh, this man had a uh, another person with him, originally from Cairns, who travelled with him to the RAAF uh, based in Tyndall, and uh, they're also exploring the possibility that he could have possibly been the source of a COVID, of of a of the COVID transmission as well. So right. we're still trying to figure out where he received the transmission of this uh, of the virus. But uh, essentially, what happens now is that Catherine is in lockdown. Greater Darwin is in a lockout situation. So this is the first time this has happened in the Northern Territory, which essentially means that um, people uh, who are fully vaccinated, who live in Greater Darwin, will be able to live pretty much normally as they want to, like they've normally done, but they need to wear a mask outside their place of residence as well as not want, not leaving the Greater Darwin area. Um, One of the points I did want to touch on that, there was some confusion about those in Palmerston. Are you able to sort of clear that up as well? So the Ghana government have suggested that Palmerston is part of the Greater Darwin region, yep. and so they are part of the lockout details for Greater Darwin. So um, despite Palmerston not reaching the vaccination targets of uh, 80% uh, full vaccination, uh, the only place in the territory where we have seen full vaccination, uh, well, when we talk about full vaccination rates of over 90% is in the city of Darwin, in the more in, inner city and central regions of Darwin. The outer suburbs are currently, I think, around about 70, 75% at the moment fully vaccinated. Yeah. But those in Palmerston then who are fully vaccinated, like those in the rest of Darwin, will be able to move around. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, those in Darwin, in the greater Darwin region who are unvaccinated, must stay at home unless they're leaving for five essential reasons, um, whether it's going to get medical treatment, essential getting essential goods uh, for one hour of outdoor exercise or to provide care and support to a family member who's vulnerable. So um, there had been some concerns about some protests for, from people who were unvaccinated in Darwin over the weekend. Um, uh, the police commissioner, J uh, Jamie Chalker, urged those protesters not to gather on the weekends um, and uh, suggested that they uh, 
delay that protest at a later time. Now, we have heard this morning, again, in this morning's press conference, that there was a second case now that had been confirmed as one of the close contacts um, of this 20-year-old man. Uh, he was a household contact, and he's now also being sent to Howard Springs Quarantine Facility, and they're trying to establish the amount of contacts uh, who uh, have um, uh, become positive or negative. Uh, I can tell you that 75 close contacts have been identified of this man, um, and yeah, as uh, along with the one new case, case of COVID-19, um, there are still many more tests to come back. Um, what else can I tell you about this? Uh, there's been 48 of those 75 close contacts who have been contacted. They're all undergoing 14 days of quarantine and directed to get tested as soon as possible. Um, as well as that, 27 are linked to the Catherine Club, which is one of the exposure sites in Catherine. And uh, there's more investigation to undertake the identity of these people. And um, yeah, people are just encouraging, um, the, the government are encouraging anyone who's displayed symptoms to go at, through a Catherine drive through testing site. And I understand through, again, the Gunner government, um, there have been long waiting times at the drive through um, testing site uh, today. Um, people have booked out appointments over the weekend because of this announcement as well to get vaccinated. Uh, apparently 500 people uh, put, booked in appointments to get a COVID-19 vaccine jab um, in the hour between 10 and 11 last night. And uh, Chief Minister Michael Gunner made his uh, announcement of this uh community transmission at around about 10 o'clock last night. So certainly there's been a very um, heightened reaction from the community to get themselves protected. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty much been the message from the Ghana government and uh, the police commissioner, as well as the chief deputy chief health officer, Dr. Charles Payne, as well, um, for people to get their jabs in the arms. Well, definitely, you know, a situation that uh, everyone's going to have to be watching very closely across the territory in case there have been any more spreading or, you know, of course, if we do find where the original, uh, where the man actually got it from and where that person has sort of gone and stuff like that. So for everyone listening in, please make sure you head to uh, coronavirus.nt.gov.au. You can head there and get some of the latest info of what's been coming through here in the Territory. On that note, Philippe, thank you so much for just, joining us. Just before we go, I should also mention that if um, there are any updates from our Chief Minister, we will attempt to broadcast it live here on Karma as well over the weekend. Thanks again, Philippe. No worries. Thanks, Kyle. And thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you did miss any of the stories or want to listen back, you can head to the Calm website. We post those stories up and a podcast of the show as well. Thanks once again and have a wonderful day and a nice weekend.